Welcome to Simple Life Radio. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez. Simple Life Radio focuses on the simple things in life that get us back to basics and help us connect to the sweeter things that sometimes we overlook in our fast-paced lifestyle. Today's show is focused on the basics of life on Earth. Our topic for today is Earth Stewardship and Climate Change. Our guest, Guy McPherson, is a retired professor of ecology at the University of Arizona, and he runs a blog called Nature Bats Last. In recent years, his writing and speaking has been varied all over the world, and he warns of impending climate catastrophe. Those warnings go far beyond what you'll find anywhere else, and he believes humans will go extinct in as little as a few decades. I want to know more about this. Welcome, Guy. Thank you, Cynthia. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Well, it's really great to have you here, and I'm so happy that you're here for our audience as well. In many of your expressions about the situation that we find ourselves in on Earth, you say that we're absolutely doomed and there's nothing that we can do about it. Everything is lost. I wonder what your intention is in speaking out about it in that way. Well... I accumulate the science created by other people since I left active service at the University of Arizona more than five years ago. I haven't ag- had access to grant money and graduate students and so on. So now I do secondary research. I accumulate, synthesize, and integrate, and organize research done by other people. And it leads me to conclusions that are considerably more dire than what anybody else is reporting. But it's not my research, and it's not my research program that is producing this information. It's other people's science that I'm citing. And the word is simply not getting out there. Why do I do what I do? Because I think people have the right to know the information, and the corporate governments and the corporate media of the world are not getting the information out. So... I think people have a right to understand where the evidence is pointing and to act accordingly. So you're really trying to be the messenger and get the word out there. Yes, and the response is, as it's always been for messengers with dire messages, (laughs) let's shoot the messenger. Uh, I understand. Is it true, though, that in in your estimation, given the science that you are familiar with, there is nothing that can be done? Well, there are many things we can do as individuals, as a society. It seems there is nothing that can be done to turn around the ship with respect to abrupt climate change. We have triggered abrupt climate change. We have, through industrial civilization, triggered 38 irreversible self-reinforcing feedback loops. So these are these are things like throwing a rock off the hill. The further it goes, the faster it goes, the faster it goes, the, the, the more difficult it is to to bring it back up once it's once you throw that rock over the hill there's no getting it back and it can the rock continues to go faster as it goes down and so we've done that on 38 fronts with respect to climate change we already threw the rock over the hill and it's a it's a boulder and there's the road runner and why the coyote waiting there at the bottom and guess what we're why the coyote <laughs> well i understand that um any kind of optimism you basically consider hopium. Uh, 
And so I'm, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about what can be done. And uh, once we start this chain event, basically, it's going to go and continue. But I'd like to have some uh, sense from you if you think it's worthwhile in some way to make some changes and what those changes might be. Are they limited to political, economical changes? Are the changes that individuals uh, take on driving a Prius, for example, it doesn't really compensate? People ask me about recycling. What if we just recycle more? And I said, is it okay if I punch you in the face? If I apologize after the fact? Because recycling really is an apology after we punch the planet in the face. Mm -hmm. And so more recycling is not the answer here. At its root, the predicament of climate change is found in industrial civilization. As Tim Garrett pointed out in a paper written seven years ago and published in the prestigious journal Climatic Change, only collapse of industrial civilization prevents runaway greenhouse. And so that indicates to me that there is no political or economic response. We can't just put a tax on carbon. and That's not going to collapse industrial civilization. So, so the only hope for other species, for non-human species at this point, I suspect, is to terminate industrial civilization. That's the root of our predicament with respect to climate change, with respect to the sixth great extinction, with respect to fouling the air and dirtying the water, and all the other things that we do that 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 allows us to live the way we live, to to choose between a Prius and a Hummer, to choose between organic or regular at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's all industrial civilization. As long as we have those choices, n- none of the choices are good. That's a really important point. I don't think that that is obvious to many of us. Uh, oftentimes in America, you know, we're known for, for being the nation with the most choices. Yes. And the yes. most diversity. And what I'm hearing you say is if there is a choice, then the industrial civilization, which is making a, a very, very impactful negative influence on the planet and the rest of us is at work. That's right. Driving some 200 species a day to extinction, according to the United Nations, a report from many years ago. So the number has probably increased since then. This is the, All of this is rooted in industrial civilization. And of course, we can't just stop industrial civilization without first decommissioning the world's nuclear power plants. Because if we stop industrial civilization, they all all melt down catastrophically, and we have Fukushima times 400 or so. And so that's going to be a little inconvenient for habitat for humans. That's really true. And industrial civilization is built on an economy, is it not? Yeah, I mean, you, you could say that the industrial economy and industrial civilization are one and the same. So this is a just in time delivery system that requires us to extract our way of life from the living planet. So we foul the air and we dirty the water and we erode the soils and we drive other species to extinction and we drive our own individuals to despair. And that's the very definition of the industrial economy. To to sustain the unsustainable, and industrial civilization is patently unsustainable, to sustain that for any period of time requires that we turn the wildlands of the world into cities. 
that, that, that we drain the forests and turn them into buildings, that we destroy the soil and turn it into bricks, and that we keep doing that indefinitely. Iconoclastic Tucson-based writer Edward Abbey wrote many years ago something, I'm going to paraphrase here, civilization like an airplane remains in flight only as it is moving forward. Industrial civilization, the industrial economy, stays in flight, keeps going only as we keep getting more and more and more. So we have to always ratchet up the omnicide associated with the industrial economy, or it comes screeching to a halt. And then we have the, the Tim Garrett situation of of stopping runaway greenhouse. I suspect it's too late at this point that to stop it. Yeah, that, that you know, since Garrett's work was published, we have found out in the refereed journal literature about a few dozen so of these self-reinforcing feedback loops. So he didn't know about those when he was writing his signature paper mm. in 2007. Uh, and in addition, were we able to collapse industrial civilization and therefore prevent runaway climate change, we would cause runaway ionizing radiation. It, it takes decades to decommission nuclear power facilities. It's not something you can do overnight. You know, I would argue that it's not about us. That it's not about white men who've been running the show for thousands of years. Maybe, maybe this whole thing, this this entirety of the planet on which we've existed for a mere blink of time, maybe it's really not about us. Maybe it's not about white men. Maybe it's about the the millions of species with which we share the planet. Maybe it's not all about turning those species into food and fodder so we can continue this this horrific way of living that drives all those species over the brink. Mm. And so that brings me to my question about your having become a certified grief counselor. Uh, I understand that um, I'm just glimpsing personally what it must be like to face objective information that identifies our extinction, that identifies a it's too late point in time. And uh, the natural response to that is as humans is grief, either for ourselves, uh, those we love and care about, or for all the, the life that will be affected. And so I'm, I'm curious if that had anything to do with uh, your wanting to certify in grief counseling. The primary reason I sought the certification in the beginning, I had a terrible bedside manner. I was the medical doctor that walks into the exam room with a clipboard and flips through the papers and tells the patient, so it looks like there's, oh, you got maybe six weeks to live, and paying your way out, I got a golf game to catch, <laughs> you know, while looking at his watch. And so that was me when I was delivering presentations. I was all, all science. I was mm. all, all head and no heart. I'd get up there and say, so it looks like we're headed for 4C, and that means extinction, and see ya. That's what the science says. Deal with it. And then I arrived there in Phoenix in January for the grief recovery workshop, and within two hours I realized that, yes, this probably would help, 
with my presentations, but more importantly, it would help with my life. That I didn't even recognize that I was experiencing grief mm. because I didn't know what grief was. And we're such a grief denying culture. So true. That we just try to cover it all up and, and sweep it under the rug and, and not deal with it at all. No. And, and so I realized within the first couple of hours of this 35 hour workshop that I have issues. <laughs> Who knew? You know, the science guy has issues. <laughs> and that and there's actually a way to deal with incomplete relationships. And and, and grieving is essentially the uh, process that results from incomplete incomplete relationships. And so when I left active service at the university, um, everybody in my life either changed or I changed. Maybe both. Mm. But the relationship with me and all of my former colleagues and friends and family members changed overnight. I was I was no longer a respected member of the academic community. I was the crazy guy. And that was the perception of essentially everybody in my life. Mm. And and I just went on acting as if nothing had changed because I I didn't recognize what they were dealing with what they were thinking, what they were going through. And the relationship had changed, but I was failing to recognize that the relationship had changed. They were altered irrevocably, mm -hmm. essentially overnight. And when I recognized that, I was able to complete those relationships, alter the nature of my relationship with people, and then move forward. That's recovering from grief. That's why it's called grief recovery workshop or grief recovery method their 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 tagline when they start the workshop is we don't do grief we do grief recovery and that's an important distinction because you can get mired in grief and never make any progress with that that's true just and get stuck yeah you just get stuck mm -hmm. and 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 we hear all these cultural myths you know time heals all wounds and and you should grieve alone and don't do that in public and and you should find something to occupy your time. Mm -hmm. and, and all these myths that don't have anything to do with dealing with grief, with recovering with grief. Instead, they have to do with masking it, with hiding it, with, with putting a Band-Aid on a spurting wound. So that everyone around you will feel more comfortable. Exactly. So this entire culture is about not, it's not about you. It's about me. Mm -hmm. And I want to feel better. Mm -hmm. I, I don't care what you're dealing with. Just go away so that I can feel better. And that's what the whole culture is about. So we shouldn't expect to be any different on the on the grief front, should should we? Well, and I'm wondering, with this kind of message that you've very decidedly taken forward, if people are in a position to actually hear it, or if they're already in some form of grief or another already, and therefore in an altered state, not expected to respond reasonably. Well, because this culture denies grief so much and denies, well, any feeling really so much, um, th this, is, this is challenging. My message is a challenging one to accept because we don't feel well in this culture. We're not good at feeling yeah. in this culture. So we're, we're good at um, putting together information and using various 
distractions to overcome our own misery, to overwhelm our own, or maybe just hide it. But we're not very good at dealing with negative emotions in this culture. So, so the response of many of my critics, almost all of whom are white men, by the way, which is pretty interesting, um, that the, the kingpins of patriarchy have a hard time accepting the fact that patriarchy might be going away and taking our species with it. Um, so, so my critics um, have difficulty with, or now maybe I'm just projecting, but my perception is they have difficulty dealing with emotions, especially negative emotions. And they have difficulty dealing with nonlinear change. And, and that's to be expected. That's probably an evolutionary response. Because our, our lives essentially are linear. You know, we look back over the last five years and ten years and a hundred years, and we see relatively linear changes in every aspect of our lives. And so what do we expect going forward? Linear the changes, same, obviously. Yeah. So we've had a 0.85 degrees centigrade warming of the planet, planetary average, since 1750. That's not much change. It's less than one degree centigrade. Uh, it's approximately one degree Fahrenheit, in fact just over one degree Fahrenheit. So surely over the next 150 or 200 years, it'll be just like that as well. Um, Albert Bartlett, longtime professor emeritus at Colorado University, delivered a presentation more than a thousand times on the exponential function. And I'm paraphrasing again, he said something like more than a thousand times he said this. The greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. And and so that so that's a big part of the problem. We we observe this linear change, and we think it will be linear going forward. But we we see lots of exponential patterns in our lives. We we just assume they don't apply to us. Well, I think oftentimes I run into people who feel powerless to do anything significant about it. I mean, even in terms of local government. Never mind federal government. Um, there's there's such a emphasis on monetary wealth and uh, authoritative power that the regular person just sort of feels any effort is futile. Well, I agree with them. In fact, so any effort is futile. Well, I think that at the level of the individual. There is no hope for those individual actions to turn this to turn this thing around on essentially any front. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't believe that five and a half years ago when I left active service at the university, I left as a in part as a protest against imperialism. And I'm a teacher, so I just assumed everybody would follow my lead. Well, we can see how well that turned out, <laughs> can't we? And so, sure, at the level of the individual, it's essentially impossible. And, you know, you look at the people pulling the levers of industry, and they're not me and you. And we haven't had anything resembling a democracy in this country for a very long time. I had a book published 10 years ago, 2004, called Killing the Natives, Has the American Dream Become a Nightmare? And in the first 10 pages of that book, I point out that we're deep in fascism in the United States already. That was 10 years ago. And, and it point out the defining elements of fascism and how we're meeting every single one of them. 
So, can you make a difference through recycling and individual actions? No. We're living in a fascist police state, and and there's no there's no prospect for me and you as individuals to turn that around. I don't care how we vote, and don't even get me started on voting for <laughs> for the twin cheeks of the corporate ass mm-hmm. that are the Democrats and the Republicans. Mm-hmm. It's it's a completely meaningless show. It's a distraction. So, are there things we can do that will make our own lives better? Yes. Well, and I saw an interview that that you had on YouTube where at the later part of the interview you talked about how this is really a wake-up call for us to enjoy our lives more intensely, to be more present with our relationships and each other. And I wonder if you're willing to speak about that a little bit here because it seems like a that's kind of where we are. And, and that's where we are. And, you know, that's where we've always been in the entire history of the human experience. The the approach going forward for relatively enlightened people is to live here now, to be with the ones you're with, to be present, to accept reality and try to make the world a joy-filled, joyful place for humans and other organisms. Maybe even give those other organisms a longer run than they would otherwise have. And so, at some level, this fits perfectly with my narcissism. It's really about us as individuals and what we do. And I think there are things that we that we can, and much as I hate to use the, the word should, do to make the world a better place for for those around us, including the non-humans around us. Yes, there are things we can do, and no matter how this turns out, we're all going to die anyway. And so accepting that, and even if we live to be 100 years old, accepting that we're going to die and that the actions we take can improve the lives of those around us. Uh, I don't think that's a bad approach to take. So even if I I gave a presentation last night and uh, for the first time I I changed part of the presentation, I, I pointed out, as I often do, that we're the lucky ones because we get to die. We're not so lucky because we get to die, but what that means is we get to live. And the odds against this collection of DNA appearing in physical form are astronomical, truly astronomical. The the odds against that happening exceed the odds against plucking a single atom at random from the entire universe. And yet, here we are. And so I point out that it's amazing. We are incredibly lucky. We get to die. You get to die. And that means you got to live. And then I go to the slide that says, what if he's wrong? Because a lot of people have have pointed out that I'm wrong about everything. And, and, and I'm wrong about a lot of things. I have an extensive record of being wrong about things. If you want the comprehensive list, you can probably check with my wife. I think she has the full list in her head. <laughs> <laughs> um, in any event, of course, I've been wrong about many things. But, but so what if, I, if I'm wrong? You still get to die. Right? Yeah, I mean, once you're born, you're on your way to the end of your days. Right. Birth is lethal. Yeah. And so let's accept that reality and live with urgency. Mm-hmm. Live, as Nietzsche said, as though the day were here. 
to to be present, to be fully present with the ones we're with, and to experience the amazing emotions that we have as human animals. And those include joy and sadness and grief and depression. And I don't want to stop those. You know, Louis C.K. was interviewed by Conan a few years ago, and he he does this little five-minute thing on why I hate cell phones. And he, he hates cell phones because, first of all, every kid in America thinks they deserve one. And and it wasn't that long ago they didn't even exist. And now every kid <laughs> in America thinks they deserve one. <laughs> Our failure to differentiate between needs and wants is truly astonishing in this culture. But then he goes on to say that they're they're just another distraction. You know, you're driving down the road and 100% of the people you come across who are also driving are texting on their phones. And so why do they do that? Why are they risking to why are they willing to risk the lives of everybody around them and and ruin the rest of their own life mm-hmm. just so they can text? And why he concludes that it's because we don't want to deal with emotions. If we actually think about and realize where we are and at at the very core of us there's nothing there. There's no, we're alone in this universe. We are all there is, and we have these incredibly short lives. And if you actually sit down and think about that, if you go down and sit by a creek and for two hours, and I challenge any 20-year-old listening to do that, by the way, without your phone, you will discover that there is you here now, surrounded by the amazing beauty of nature. And you will also discover, when you become introspective enough, that you're not going to live long on this planet. And that's always been true, because we just have these few moments in time. And holy crap, is that ever sad? My God. It's very sobering. Yes. It changes, I think, the framework of our perception of wherever we are and whatever we're experiencing. Yes. And so there's just here, there's just now, and I'm nobody, I'm nothing, and I'm, I'm going to blink out just like everybody else, and, 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 and at some point our species goes extinct, and, and it's all, it all seems so meaningless. And so that just can, can cause somebody to be overwhelmed with sadness. And so Louis C.K. Can, concludes that that's why people are on their, on their phones all the time, mm. so they don't have to deal with that emotion. And so, so he says... So he says, I let it hit me. I pulled off to the side of the road, and I turned the phone off, and I just let it hit me, that, that overwhelming sadness, and I just cried. And he says, and I think that's important, because you can't experience profound joy if you can't also ex- experience profound sadness. Wow, that's really I think really that's powerful. right. Yeah. We are human animals. We have these incredible emotions. Let's feel them. Let's not deny them. Mm-hmm. Let's, try to co- let's not try to cover them up. By, by texting and talking on the phone and always keeping ourselves busy. And, and, and so that what that does is it gives us a little bit of happiness here and there right. and a little bit of sadness here and there, but it doesn't allow us to go into the whole thing. Well, we don't have enough time. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a text right now. Oh, look, it's from somebody important. <laughs> and so, yes, as long as we have these distractions, then we, we don't allow ourselves to experience this full range of emotions that we're capable of experiencing as human beings. So l- let's set those distractions aside and, and introspect a bit and sit down 
by that creek or by that pond or in that forest and and feel it and and feel what it means to be human in the world Mm -hmm. i love that and just simply the effect of nature on our psyche is so healing and restorative if nothing else yes nature is amazing we should get more of that in our lives yeah and most people are are looking for less of that in their lives so they can go faster you know my my latest definition of civilization must go faster (laughs) (laughs) because civilization just always goes faster and faster we have to keep up oh my goodness now you have a new book just now being released titled uh extinction dialogues and I'm wondering how this book differs from your previous one on climate change titled Going Dark. Well, this one is written by an amazing co-author, Carolyn Baker. And whereas until quite recently I was all head and no heart, and now I've discovered my heart. It's sort of a Wizard of Oz story if you follow the whole thing. Um, Carolyn has been doing... Um, psychotherapy and 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 ecotherapy for a long time and so when we decided to write this book together extinction dialogues how to live with death in mind and i think that's an that's an important subtitle because the book really is about how to live at the end of our days mm-hmm. and and so how do we live if the world is in hospice so it, it's a grief recovery kind of approach it is it really is and we were so inspired, we wrote the book in 13 days. My we, we, goodness. We went back and forth. And, it, you know, it's not a pamphlet. It, it's got, you know, a couple hundred pages or something. It's, it's a, So it's not the kind of thing that should be written in 13 days. It's, it's more than 200 pages. And we cranked this thing out because we were so inspired and invigorated by our interaction with each other. Um, because we're, we're very different Carolina had never written a book with somebody else before. I had written several books with other academics, but we were all pretty like-minded, right? So we're just sort of grinding through the information and coming to agreement on minor points that really don't matter. And with Carolyn and I, we, re- we truly were coming at this from different perspectives because we've had very different lives and very different experiences. And so that enabled us to carry on this dialogue, Extinction Dialogues, mm. to carry on this dialogue uh, mostly electronically with each other, and writing it down and responding to what we had, what she just said, and then what what I just said. Um, so it's very different from the pretty much all head, no heart book that is going dark. And and would you say that this book, Extinction Dialogues, is a real um, uh, guidepost to people who are dealing with the realities of our time? Yes, I think it's amazing that any publisher would take it on so i very much appreciate tay and lane for being radical enough to take it on radical means to get to the root of doesn't mean extremist like many people think it means and and so that tay and lane would take on this project is impressive and i think it does serve as a guidepost a signpost for where we're at and where we're headed mm-hmm. and it's not the the, the message is not you're all going to die, so go curl up in your room and cry for an hour and then come back and it'll all be fine. Mm-hmm. That's not the message at all. It's, it's how to live with death in mind. It's, it's how to, to live in light of the fact that your life is short. 
something that we've we've known since we were ten, or in some cases five years old, right? Mm-hmm. That our lives are short, and that that birth is in fact lethal. And so, how do we live with that in, in knowledge? And and the book suggests that we live with urgency, that we live as if our moments matter, that we try to create moments of joy that don't just involve us, because I can get that by eating a double stuffed Oreo cookie. <laughs> but that also involves the Or other texting <laughs> on the highway. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but it also involves those around us, that, that we, we expand our joy to include the circle around us. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the message in a nutshell. Sorry if I just cost a bunch of publications being sold for the publisher. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you can read the full 220 pages and get the expanded version of that. Right. Good. Okay. Um, I just had a thought when you were speaking about really being here now and living with urgency and enjoying your life. And, And the question that comes to mind is, how do you feel about all the protests going on? How does that fit in? I mean, are you suggesting that we basically go into acceptance there's nothing we can do we need to just enjoy our lives and our family and live in our homestead and wait it out no okay good no i'm not suggesting that at all edward abbey wrote many 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 years ago um, action is the antidote to despair many people despair when they hear what i have to say Action is the antidote to despair. I'm not suggesting that we roll over and die. I'm suge- and I have never suggested that, by the way, despite the slanderous comments I receive by various podcasters and the horrible things people write about me. I have never suggested that we roll over and die, that the end is near, and we should just go to sleep now. No, not at all. Action is the antidote to despair. I have always encouraged action, even if it's futile for our species because it's certainly not futile for non-human species and furthermore what better judge of our character than how we act in the face of insurmountable odds right so so we can we we can play david to goliath and look up and say, "Ooh, geez, this doesn't look good. I'm going <laughs> to run from this," uh, and just give up. Or, in the face of overwhelming odds, we can we can march forward. We can take acts that we think are right acts, and 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 here the inner Buddhist comes out in me. We can take those right actions in light of the information, regardless of what the information is. So. I'm happy to hear you say that. I honestly. think that we that we must act. Yeah. We must act even if especially if there's no hope. I mean if this was easy then what's the big deal we'd all get on with it and we you know there's mm-hmm. no uh, but if it's not easy and it's not easy and it's not supposed to be easy. If it were easy anybody could live joyously. Mhm. But not everybody does. No, that's true. And so with respect to the protests generally, with respect to the climate marches just concluded, the the Great March for Climate Action. That was in... People's uh, Climate March. Washington, not Washington. Where was this one? Well, the the, the big one, the, 
the March for Climate Action went from L.A. to New York. Uh-huh. And then over the course of a day or two, there was the People's Climate Charge March, which was in New York. And I don't... I, I see that kind of action as being stuck at the second stage of a four-stage pro- project. So that if, if you want to get something done, you do research, you educate people, you organize people, and then you act. The marches are about education. We've known about climate change for a long time. We've known about climate change, arguably, since since George Perkins Marsh talked about it in 1847, before we started even burning oil and coal at scale. We've known about it from the Referee Journal literature since 1896, the the spring of April 1896, when Svente Arrhenius wrote about the, the horrors of putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and what's that gonna, what that will do to warm the planet. So we've known about climate change for a long time. The research is complete. The education, I thought, was complete a long time ago. But you had mentioned you still meet people who seem to be unaware of it altogether. Well, I don't meet many people who are unaware of anthropogenic climate change. Uh, I meet a few people who are unwilling to admit that it exists. Okay. And and mostly I meet people who are unaware of abrupt climate change, that that we are in this this rapidly heating phase of planetary existence. So Paul Beckwith, for example, is a climate scientist at the University of Ottawa, and in October 2012, um, he put out a little video clip indicating that we could see 6C warming within a decade or so. And bear in mind, we haven't had humans on the planet at 3.5 degrees C above baseline, beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So that's abrupt climate change. Abrupt climate change is when the methane gun is fired, the clathrate gun is fired in the Arctic, we see it warming very, very rapidly. So in 55 million years ago, there was an event um, of planetary warming of 5 degrees C within 13 years. That's abrupt climate change. That's Most abrupt. people are unaware that that is underway. Mm-hmm. And many people deny that it could ever happen because we have this linear this linear uh, experience, right? We, right? we see back and we've, we've observed 0.85 degrees centigrade temperature rise in the last couple of hundred years. Surely it'll be like that going forward. Yeah, it's just an adjustment. Right. Yes, we'll adapt. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll make these minor changes. We'll recycle more. Well, that's better for business. Yes, it is. And given that we have corporate governments and corporate media, it's no surprise that that's the recommended outcome mm-hmm. is to do what's good for business. So you mentioned the four stages where education is the second stage, and you'd like to see us move on from there. Right. So we've conducted the research, and the research has been published in the Referee Journal literature since at least 1896. Um, Arguably, we can go back before that to Tyndall's work, which produced a book in 1850-something. No, 1872. He gave a talk in 1863 and published his work in a book in 1872. So we've known about climate change for a long time. The research is done. 
the research is that climate change is anthropocentric, anthropocentric in origin, that, that we are causing, that, that, that industrial civilization is causing it. We're, we're beyond research. We sh- I thought we would be beyond education at this point because now young children hear about it even in the, in the incredibly um, incomplete and I would argue incompetent K-12 through edu- education system we have in this country, or K-12 indoctrination program. And they hear about it then. They hear about climate change at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So I think education, it's time to move beyond education. Right. Perhaps education will never be complete because there will always be deniers. There will always be pe- people who refuse to accept reality. But it's time to move beyond and leave some of those children behind, regardless of the No Child Left Behind Act. <laughs> some people are never going to be able to accept the reality that we're in. Mm-hmm. But I think we're at a majority at this point, and it's time, it's long been time to move past education and on to organizing and acting. You know, when somebody runs a political campaign, they do research, they educate themselves, they organize, mm-hmm. and then they act. And the successful campaigns don't stop at education. They keep going to action. We're stuck on education. And that's what these marches and these protests are. They are minor acts of education. Well, it's long past time to move beyond that. Now, I don't fault the people who were in the march because it looked like it was a great party. You know, all the marches looked like they were a great party, and I encourage people to do what they love. And some people went and took advantage of the opportunity to educate more p- people more thoroughly than they had otherwise been educated. So one of my Facebook friends, who I don't know, a guy named David Petraeus, I think, um, marched, and he carried a sign around his neck, like the old-fashioned signboard, and it said, let's have a conversation about near-term human extinction. And he talked to a lot of people about that yeah, as yeah. a result of climate change. Right. And then the filmmaker who recently made a documentary film about me and my efforts went and she took her camera and she shot a bunch of people as she was asking them questions. Like, do you know this march is funded by the Rockefellers? The 350.org is funded by the Rockefellers, which means big oil. Did you know that Avaz is a, is a big part of the movement. Did you know that that there's $220,000 in marketing down on the subway to promote this march? And so she's asking questions that people were unaware of, that, that, that the whole thing is put together as a show to not, specifically to not take action, but to, to mire ourselves in mm. that educational part, in that, in that second of four stages. And and so it's fine. And some people took advantage of the opportunity and did these good things to at least further the conversation in an appropriate direction. Um, and it was a, it looked like a great party. So 310,000 people having a great party and some of them even getting arrested and, and sort of pointing out that the dominant paradigm is fundamentally corrupt. Good for them. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think it, it's not relevant, that it's a distraction. It's It's all part of the show all part of the circuses mm-hmm. that are keeping us occupied and keeping us from organizing and acting in a meaningful way. You know, we know that, that 5 million people a year are dying early deaths as a result of climate change right now. 
So we know that climate change is killing people. We know that. And, and, and people ask me all the time, when will climate change become real? When will it start <laughs> affecting people? Well, if you're among the family members of those 5 million, I'm guessing it's already real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know in China, it's, it's, the air quality is staggeringly different than here. Hmm. And I would guess there's a mindset that says, well, that's over there. Yes, absolutely. That's over there. And, and also, we've, we, we had horrible air quality for a long time in this country when we, were get starting on, when we were starting out on the industrial path. And so a lot of people think, well, that's okay. They'll, they'll get to where we are. To, they'll, they'll pass their version of the Clean Air Act in another 50 or 100 years. They'll be in the same place we are. And so it'll all be good. We have to let them go through this juvenile yes, yeah, stage of yeah. their development. And, and what, what right do we have to try to stop that for them? That sort of thing. Yeah. Well, these are all very profound, deep questions, and your research has been incredible. Your dedication to getting the message out and making sure that people know, have that ability to know what's ahead of them and use their time in a very conscious way. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for saying that. And almost every day... I think I'm I'm done. I'm just going to throw in the towel. This is I haven't had I haven't received a paycheck in five and a half years. Nobody's paying me to be the lightning rod for the kill the messenger approach that our culture has adopted. So every day I think this is it. This is the last day I'm doing this crap. I'm done with this. I don't get paid for this. It's one thing to get paid for it. Yeah. And people ask me all the time. <laughs> They actually they don't ask they tell they tell me all the time you need to prepare a point by point critique of everything your critics write and I'm thinking really why don't I do what I recommend other people do and enjoy their lives now, I'm not getting paid for this I'm not going to go down that path of misery for no pay I I went down the a path in which I was getting paid and I and I and I had to do some terrible things as a result of that but I don't have to do that anymore so now I'm going to try to do the things I I like to do and about every other day that means I'm going to quit collating this climate change information because it's it's already clear it's already clear that we've triggered these self-reinforcing feedback loops the the information couldn't be more apparent. I don't know how many more ways I can say mm-hmm. live here now. And and so uh, part of me wants to just throw in the towel and get on with my life and start hiking more in the wilderness instead of sitting there at my keyboard. Mm. And so you're on tour right now. You're visiting California from New Mexico. You've been speaking um, throughout the area. And I know you will be at the Pilgrim's Way bookstore in Carmel. California for a couple hours this Saturday, September 27th from 1 to 3. Um, That is a free event. Do you want to shout out about any other speaking that you're doing and invite folks? Well, of course, all as near as I can tell, all events are free and open to the public. And there's a complete list at the coming events tab at Nature Bats Last. So if you go to GuyMcPherson.com, up there at the top of the page, there's 10 or 11 tabs, and one of them, I think the third one, is called Coming Events. And if you click on that, it'll tell you uh, 
the date, time, and, and, and place of all of my events for the next week and a half or so. And yes, I would encourage people to come. If you're familiar with, with my work, if you've commented at Nature Bats last, we're comrades in arms. So come early and we'll chat a bit. Very good. Now, I, I like to ask my guests a closing question. I can't wait to get your answer on this one. Uh, how do you envision our future? Through a glass, darkly. <laughs> um, uh, I, in, I suspect that industrial civilization, the industrial economy, will reach its overdue end in the not-too-distant future. And and when that happens, and clearly we can't sustain the unsustainable forever, so that will happen, civilizations fall. When that happens, we know now that within a matter of days, these sulfates all, all fall out of the atmosphere and are not being added to the atmosphere, so we experience a very rapid rise in global average temperature. Um, in a very short period of time. In the interior of large continents, especially the interior of large continents in the northern hemisphere, which is where essentially all large continents are, the warming will proceed at more than twice as fast as the global average. So that takes us to places like um, where I live in New Mexico and throughout the heartland um, at more than four degrees centigrade above baseline, and so I suspect, in in a in a very short period of time after that, we run out of habitat for humans, and then it keeps warming. You know, this, this thing is not turning around in the near future. There are negative feedbacks that play out over hundreds of thousands of years, and and it could be that we've gone Venus. The Earth is within within one percent of being uninhabitable, due to our proximity to the sun. And so it could be by making relatively major changes in atmospheric chemistry, such as we've done here on Earth, that, w that we have triggered a Venus-style event. That could be. We don't know yet. And we won't ever know, because humans won't be around to witness that. So I suspect that we will see a rather significant increase in human mortality in the not-distant future when industrial civilization falls, and that humans will persist in the southern portion of the southern hemisphere, say this New Zealand or the extreme southern um, Australia or, or uh, South America or South Africa and so on. So humans might persist there for an, for another couple of decades. It's a little hard to say. There, there will be habitat there for humans because of the proximity to Antarctica and being surrounded by water and having relatively good distance from the world's nuclear power plants. So I suspect the last human will die in one of those relatively southern locations. Let's call it the South Island of New Zealand in, you know, 2031. Something like that. And until then, we can just enjoy our lives. Until then, we can live here now and try to make the world a better place for non-human species mm -hmm. and for the humans around us. We can live here now we can try to do what is right in light of all that we've done as civilized humans that is so wrong. So that would be a start. And that's where we're going to leave it. 
It's been so great having you as a guest on Simple Life Radio. Thank you, Guy. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, Cynthia. It's great to be with you. Thank you. And we'll be back again next week for Simple Life. Until then, keep it simple.